All right, well, good morning. My name is Jared. I am one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church, and we're uh, grateful that you guys chose to come and worship with us today and to gather. Uh, there's a small handful of us here in person, and uh, many more of you I know are at home and uh, tuning in on the live stream. So we're excited that you guys are, are with us today. We're continuing our, our study through the book of John. And uh, today we're looking at chapter 7, verses 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. And so I'm going to read that, and then uh, we'll, we'll talk through a portion of it together. John seven fifty-three through eight eleven. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to him, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Um, pray with me one more time as we look at this passage of Scripture. Father, we are grateful for your word. God, I'm grateful for your Holy Spirit that, uh, that exists inside of us, for those of us who are in Christ. Um, Father, we pray this morning that as we spend uh, just a brief few minutes, God, studying uh, this passage, that God, you would draw us near to yourself. That God, you would give us, uh, as, as Ben was praying, you would give us ears to hear from your Spirit. God, we recognize that we have a, a need and a dependence for you. And Father, may we live out of that this morning, out of that need. God, as we come to you, God, give us open ears and open hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So quickly, before we jump into the, the scripture passage itself, I want to recognize something because your Bible probably has a, a note somewhere around this piece of scripture, depending on the version that you have, it may say something different. Mine says, uh, before jumping into this passage, it says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And that, that's all it says. Um, I've seen that before, and I grew up going to church. I was never taught really what that meant, because it's, it's a little weird, Right? I mean, you, you just read that in the Bible and you think, well, so did this really happen? Like, what, like why is this here? What do you mean it wasn't included in the earliest manuscripts? I, I don't know how to, how to interpret that in light of Scripture. And so I, I want to spend part of our time this morning just going through what that means because I think it's beneficial and I think it's, uh, I think it's faith building for us to take a little closer look at what that means. And then we'll jump into the passage and we'll, uh, we'll finish our time kind of studying through the passage. So um, the reason for this, the reason this is here is that most New Testament scholars don't think that this particular story 
was in John's original writings. They don't think this particular story was in John's original writings. And there's multiple reasons for that. Um, It's missing from all the Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century. It's missing from those. Uh, The earliest church fathers omit this passage when they're commentating on John. Um, In fact, the, the text, if you read it in context of what comes prior to it and what comes immediately after this passage, it actually flows better without the story stuck in the middle. So just from a a flow perspective, it would make more sense if this wasn't placed right here. Uh, No Eastern church father cites this passage before the 10th century when dealing with this gospel. When the story does start to appear in manuscripts, um, it shows up in three different places other than here. And so in some manuscripts, it was found in John uh, chapter 7, around verse 36, around verse 44, and also in John 21, verse 25. And then there's actually a manuscript of, uh, of the Gospel of Luke that it shows up after chapter 21, verse 38. Uh, so it's, its style and vocabulary is more unlike the rest of the book of John than any other passage that we find here. And so there's, there's a multitude of reasons why people look at this particular section of verses and, and, and come to the conclusion, okay, this, this wasn't or likely wasn't John's original writing. And so a little further research into that uh, and just some historical fact, the New Testament that we know was originally re- written in Greek. It was originally written in Greek, and the first copy of the Greek New Testament came off the printing press in the year 1516. In the year 1516, the first copy of the New Testament was printed, which is pretty wild to me because we so take for granted the fact that most of us have multiple copies of this book sitting either on our nightstand or it's on a bookshelf or we've gone through multiple copies through our lifetime. Listen, for 1500, the first 1,500 years that Christianity was in existence, people didn't just have copies of the Bible that they could just go pick up and, and read. I mean, it wasn't until 1516 that the first copy of the New Testament was printed off of a printing press. Otherwise, you had to have a, a literally handwritten, transcribed copy of something. And those just didn't circulate quite as well as something coming off a printing press, as you can imagine. So 1516, it first came off the printing press. So for the first 1,500 years, biblical books were passed down through handwritten copies. And that's how we have access to the, to the original wording of the books of the Bible. And so just for, for a little comparison's sake, because obviously when the books of the Bible were being written, those, you know, this wasn't the only thing being written at the time. Other people would also write things, whether it was uh, historical things or whether it was stories. You know, other people were writing at the time. And we have copies of, of other writings from the same time period. From the same time period that Jesus walked the earth and, and, and around that time frame, there are other copies of other writings. And we have copies that are numbering in essentially the tens and the twenties at best. So at best, around this time period, other writings, we have handwritten copies. Um, we might have 10 to 20 at best. 20 copies. In the, in the world, that's how many copies there are. When it comes to New Testament manuscripts, there are over 5,800 manuscripts, handwritten 
copies of either the New Testament or portions of the New Testament or books of the New Testament. 5,800 handwritten copies preserved in either libraries around the world or now preserved electronically. No other ancient book comes anywhere close to that. Anywhere close to that. The, the wealth of diverse preservation of this book is, is staggering compared to other things that were written in the same time period. And that, that wealth of preservation, um, it, it creates problems and solutions at the same time. So the, the copies don't all agree on what the wording was in the original manuscript. So if you have over 5,800 handwritten copies of something, obviously there's going to be some level of variation there. Now, that variation oftentimes is found in either a, a spelling of a word or how a verb is used. It's usually small variations that we find. Um, in, the, in the passage that we look at today, it's somewhat of a larger variation. Um, but the more manuscripts you have, the more variations you find, but also the more self-correcting they tend to be. The more self-correcting they tend to be. So we have 5,800 parts of the New Testament that we can go back and, and look at the handwritten copies of it. And again, that creates a lot of variation, but it also self-corrects itself. And so let, let me just kind of give you a, 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 an example of what I mean by that. Let's say 50 years from now, and let's pretend like the internet doesn't exist and we can't just Google this stuff. But let's say 50 years from now, you find my journal, and in my journal, it says um, on... October 15th, 2020, uh, the University of Memphis football team beat the University of Alabama football team uh, 72 to 0. Thank you for the applause. Uh, now, let's say you also find Brad Dunlap's journal, right? Okay, Brad Dunlap's journal, we read that 50 years from now. Brad's, Brad's journal says the University of Alabama beat the University of Memphis in football on October 15th, 2020, score 72 to 0. Okay, we've, we've got a problem, right? Because we just we got two copies and they seem to be contradictory to one another. But let's say we also find Michael and David's and Ben's and multiple other journals at the same time, same time frame. And we read all those journals. And let's say all those other journals say, well, on October 15th, 2020, University of Memphis beat the University of Alabama. Final score, 72 to 0. Well, now we've got a, a pretty clear picture of what actually happened because with a multitude of copies, you've got a, a bigger sample size to choose from, a bigger data pool, and you can pull from that where the variations are, and then based on the numbers that you see, what, what is most likely to have happened. And there's, a, there's actually an, an entire field of study, a science to this, called textual criticism. Textual criticism. And uh, I, I don't have time or even the, the knowledge to dive into that a whole lot, um, but I would encourage you to, to check it out. Um, but textual criticism is the science used to reconstruct the original writings of each of the books of the New Testament. The original writings. So it evaluates all these thousands of various copies from different sources and from different time periods. And it takes all these things into account, like where they were found and where they were written and the, the geographical um, distance from where the, the story took place. And it takes all these things into, into account and it tries to figure out well, what, what really happened, what was in the original writings. 
And the most encouraging and probably faith-building piece of that is that 99% of all of those writings, they're all in agreement, which is wild. I mean, we're talking handwritten manuscripts that were done over 1,500 years that were just passed down, and there's extremely little variation in them, which is incredibly faith-building and encouraging The passage that we look at today is a part of that 1% where there was some variation. And so while it's a bit controversial on where or if it fit into John's specific gospel, there's actually overwhelming consensus based on all of the manuscripts, overwhelming consensus that what happened here in this story and in these verses is authentic, that it happened, that it was a part of Jesus' ministry, and that it's worthy to be included in the New Testament and in the story of Christ and to be considered scripture that is profitable for teaching. And so it may not be John, but it is Jesus. It may not have been in John's original book and in his original writings, but the consensus is overwhelmingly that this story happened, that it was a part of Jesus' ministry, and that it's worthwhile to look at. And so, what do we do with that? Um, Just from a a teaching and from a pastoral perspective, you know, what do you do with a passage like this? Um, We're going to walk through the passage one section at a time, and we're going to pull out truth here that can be affirmed through other portions of Scripture. So truths that can be affirmed in other parts of the Bible. So we're not creating or forming doctrine from this passage, but we are seeing where it affirms truths that we find in other parts of Scripture. So that's how we're approaching that this morning. And uh, I hope that that helps you wrap your mind a little bit around what, what that, that little um, insert means when it says the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811 because I'll be honest with you I grew up um, going to church and when I've been in a lot of Sunday school classes and no one ever took the time to sit down and say Here, here's why this is in there here's what that means and it was encouraging to me so I hope that that's encouraging to you guys as well that brings us to the big idea this morning big idea Jesus is the answer for our sin problems Jesus is the answer for our sin problem. So each person that we encounter has a sin problem. We all have a sin problem. Each person you encounter has a sin problem. When we see that in the passage today, and this story unfolds in three different parts. We're going to look at each part individually. So the first part is the challenge. The first part is the challenge. Look at 753 through the first part of, uh, of 86. It says, They each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Sorry. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And so the the teachers and the Pharisees bring to Jesus this challenge. And obviously their their motives are not pure here. They're out to get Jesus. They're trying to essentially trap him between a, a rock and a hard place. 
And their treatment of the woman involved here is extremely callous and, and demeaning. They had no real concern for her. They had no real concern for sin. Like sin was not their concern. Trying to trap Jesus was their concern. And it's, <coughs> it's clear that she had been caught in the act of adultery. Um, because this was the morning time, a lot of scholars believe it's very likely that she was probably caught the night prior and then she was probably held all night. And then she's brought to Jesus and humiliated. She's placed in the midst. Remember, this isn't just Jesus, the woman, and the teachers and Pharisees. Jesus was teaching in the temple. The people are gathered all around. It's likely that this woman was known by people who would have been in the crowd. She's humiliated beyond belief. They had, the teachers and the Pharisees had no concern for sin. They had no concern for this woman. And it also begs the question, where is, where is the man involved? Where is the man involved? Leviticus 20 clearly states that both the man and the woman are to be put to death in this situation. So the law that, uh, that, that they're trying to force Jesus to keep, they're not even keeping themselves by only bringing the woman along with them. So it's either a, an example of just a, a chauvinistic attitude where the, the man's sin doesn't matter as much or maybe the man somehow escaped. There, there are some scholars who believe that this was such a, a planned trap and situation um, that it's possible that, uh, that, that a man was, was either volunteered or, or hired to try to get this woman to be in this position so that they could catch her in this position so that on this day at this time they could bring her to Jesus. Uh, there's just a lot that seems like it was plotted to lead up to this moment. And this paints a, a, a picture of the Pharisees and the teachers as just being hyper-focused and vigilant on searching out the sin of others. On searching out the sin of others. And we can easily fall into that same trap. We can easily fall into that same trap. I mean, if you keep looking into a person, if you're looking for sin in a person, and if you just keep looking, you'll eventually find it. You will eventually find it. Because if you look at anyone long enough, you'll find moments and motives of sin. Because we all have a sin problem. We all have a sin problem. And when you're focused on these sins of others, your heart dis disposition is not one of humility. It's pride masked in fake holiness. Pride masked in fake holiness. And so these, these, these um, teachers and these Pharisees, they would, uh, they would come to Jesus essentially with this, this fake idea of, hey, we're, we're, just trying to, we're just trying to do what the law says. You know, we, we caught this woman. We caught her in sin. Now let's see what the law says to do. There's no concern for her. And their, their fake attitude just says, hey, I just really take sin seriously, and so I just want to hunt out sin. And we can easily fall into that same mindset, that same trap of always focusing our sin efforts and our sin hunting, if you will, on people around us. But the truth is, if, if you truly enjoy hunting down sin, you can have a, a lifetime of happy hunting just looking at your own heart. Just looking at your own heart, looking at your own life, inspecting your own motives 
And the truth is, Jesus had already told them that they were adulterers. So the very same sin that they're bringing this woman before Jesus about, if you go back and look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 28, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus had a way of kind of raising the bar. So he says, you've heard it say, don't commit adultery, but I tell you that it's not just about the physical act. But if you've ever even looked at someone with lust, you've already committed adultery. You are guilty of adultery. And Jesus has already taught this. This has already been spoken, and yet they show up with this woman. And so having already been called out, for the same sin. And so there's a, a dilemma here that Jesus is faced with because they're essentially coming to Jesus with this woman and saying, which is it, Jesus? Which is it? Do you follow the law of Moses given by God or do you continue to be a friend of sinners? Do you follow the law or do you continue to show grace and forgiveness? Because if he doesn't follow the law, if he doesn't affirm the judgment and the consequences of the law, he'll be accused of rejecting the law of Moses. And his credibility in calling people to repent and follow the kingdom of God would be undermined by that accusation. And they were hoping that Jesus would extend mercy to her in order for them to condemn Jesus for not taking sin seriously. Or being a heretic and and forgiving sin and and acting like God to forgive sin. Or claiming that Jesus doesn't take sin seriously by just letting her go. So there's a, a hard truth here that we can learn. And that is this. We have a tendency to over accentuate the sins of others while ignoring our own. And that's clearly what's happening here. I mean, Jesus has already told the same crowd that you're guilty of adultery. And they overlook that entirely. And they find this woman who's in the act of committing adultery. And they bring her to Jesus and say, hey, should we kill her? I mean, how how blind? (laughs) How blind are you to your own sin? That you would look over your own faults, your own guiltiness, And accentuate the sins of someone else. Matthew 7 verse 3 says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And that's really what's happening here. In in this moment of challenge, there is no concern for the woman's sin. There is no concern for the woman at all. Uh, She is a, a tool used by the teachers and Pharisees to try to trap Jesus because they so badly want to get rid of him. And they will use whatever means necessary to make that happen. And so that's the challenge that we see Jesus faced with. And secondly, we want to look at the response. We want to look at the response. So the response is found in chapter 8, starting in the end of verse 6 through verse 9. It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to him, 
Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So Jesus bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. Uh, I, I don't know what the teachers and Pharisees were expecting Jesus was going to say or do. I'm guessing it wasn't this. I'm guessing it wasn't this. He essentially just ignored them and bent down and started writing something in the dust. Now, nobody knows what Jesus wrote. It's, really, it's fun to speculate. It's fun to try to look at Scripture and see what, what would it make sense for Jesus to write in the dust here. Uh, but the truth is, you know, the, the best we can do is, is guess what Jesus was doing here. Uh, but nobody really knows. So some believe that he was possibly uh, writing out the sins of the accusers in the dirt. Uh, some believe it was a reference to Jeremiah 17, 13. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 13 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. And others believe that... Um, he just simply refused to debate on their terms. He just simply to refused to, for the, the terms of this debate to be dicta- dictated by teachers of the law. So he's just simply stalling, essentially just ignoring their initial question and waiting. And that would account for their persistent questioning. Verse 7, it says they, they continued to ask him. So he obviously didn't respond to the first request, uh, but they continued to ask And Jesus finally gives an answer in verse 7 that none of them were expecting, again, because they were were looking for option A, option B, right? That's what they were looking for. Hey, do we stone her? Do we let her go? Like, those are your choices, Jesus. Jesus had a way of always finding option C, right? That third option. So Jesus doesn't give in to either of those, and he comes up with a third option, which is simply this, let him who is without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone at her. So Jesus essentially quotes the law again, Deuteronomy 13, 9, that says, your hand shall be first against him to put to death. And this is, goes back to the, the law that they're referencing on what this consequence and what this punishment looks like. And their response when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And there's a, a remarkable response that was just silent acknowledgement that in many ways they realized that they are no better than her. They're no better than her. And they just went away. They had stones ready to throw. And that phrase by Jesus, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, turned all of them away. And there's debate over why it mentions the, the older ones went first. Uh, it, it could be, hey, the longer you live, the more sin you have to reflect on. And maybe the, the quicker you realize that you're not any better than her. Uh, it could be just a, a custom at the time to allow the, the elders of the group to just take the lead in what the next response is. And when the elders put down their rocks and walked away, everyone followed. But everyone leaves. Everyone leaves. And, and the saddest part here, the saddest part of this story is that you have a group of people 
surrounding Jesus. And Jesus is the answer to our sin problem. But you have a group of people surrounding Jesus, physically in his presence, and through the words of Jesus, they come to an acknowledgement and a realization of their own sin, of their own brokenness, an acknowledgement that this law that they are so devoted to that they haven't even been able to keep it. And they realize that literally standing next to Jesus, who is the solution for the problem that they now realize they have, and they walk away. They turn around. And they retreat. And they leave to go wallow in their own sin and their own anger. Anger and sin that ultimately leads to them arresting and murdering Jesus. And we can, we can compare and contrast that response to that of, of the life of David. Not long ago, we walked through the life of David. And I, I want to just quickly go back and read several verses from Psalm 51. And this is a familiar passage to a lot of people. But David uh, found himself in some ways in a similar situation to the woman that we looked at today. David finds himself guilty of adultery and being called out on his sin. And so David has essentially the same opportunity and the same options that the teachers and the Pharisees had where they decided to just turn and walk away. Let's look at David's response when he's called out and made and, and recognizes his sin. Starting in verse 1, chapter 51, David says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Could those responses be any different? Could those responses be any different? Faced in a similar situation, instead of running away from God, David recognizes his sinfulness and he recognizes that the only solution to this problem that he has is not to run away and try to figure it out. The only solution he has is to turn and face God. To recognize that God is the only one who can grant forgiveness of sins. He's the only one who can bring him joy, who can bring him peace, who can restore and reconcile brokenness. And so the question that we have to face is, what is our response? What is our response when our sin is uncovered and we are laid bare like the woman in this passage? What is our heart's response? 
Do we turn away? Do we retreat as the teachers and Pharisees? Or do we turn to Jesus? Do we turn to the one who can heal, the one who can restore and reconcile? What is our response? Next and and finally, we want to look at the encounter. So we looked at the, the challenge that Jesus faced. We looked at the response of Jesus and the response of the crowd. And lastly, I want to look at the encounter. Because Jesus had an encounter with this woman, and this woman had an encounter with Jesus. I want to take a closer look at that encounter. So chapter 8, back in John, chapter 8, verse 10 and 11, finishes this passage. It says, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So finally, throughout this whole event, only Jesus remains. He's the only one still there. Jesus and this woman. Jesus, the one who in reality is the only one absolutely qualified to actually execute her for her sin. Isn't that what Jesus said? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone? Well, who there was without sin? Jesus is the only one even qualified to carry out this execution of the law. But that's not his response. So Jesus addresses her, and he doesn't even talk about her sin. He doesn't talk about her sin. He essentially talks about her status. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? In other words, are, are, you, are you no longer being condemned? He doesn't directly deal with her sin or reference her by her sin. He he references her and deals with her based on her status. Are you no longer condemned? Her guilt is known. Jesus has not condoned her sin. He he didn't say adultery is okay. You know what? It's not that big of a deal. Jesus takes sin seriously because he is holy and he is a just God. And Jesus takes mercy and grace seriously because he is a good and compassionate father. And he tells her the words that we all long to hear. He tells her the words we all long to hear when we are convicted of sin. He says, where, where are your condemners? Are they not here? And then he goes on to say, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Those are beautiful words. We, we all need those words. Those are the words of Jesus that, that solve, in essence, the sin problem that we all have. Th- those, are the, those are the words that the teachers and the Pharisees needed to hear, but they chose to walk the other way instead. The neither do I condemn you. God's answer for our sin and our shame is the person of Jesus. Because he came on a mission of compassion for sinners. John 3, 17 says, God did not send his son into the world to the cross. He could look forward to the cross and know that God is just and holy and sin can't be in his presence. But he's also full of grace and mercy knowing that her sin would be covered that her sin would be paid for on the cross. 
Because God did not send his son to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. She's not sinless, but she won't be condemned by other sinners. Only God can judge. Only God can judge rightly. He's the only one who can bring condemnation. And that's where we stand without Jesus. That's where we stand without Jesus. We stand condemned. No condemnation doesn't mean no conviction of sin, and it doesn't mean there aren't consequences for sin, but it means we are not condemned eternally for sin. So her sin, my sin, your sin, the, the sin of the world has been paid for with the capital punishment they were, that they were looking to carry out on her. It was taken by Jesus on the cross. It was paid for by Jesus on the cross where our sin was nailed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our, for our sake, he made him to be, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we've been given new life. We've been pardoned. Jesus says, now go live your life and sin no more. Go and live and sin no more. There are, uh, there's a, a, a popular song that uh, I think came out recently, or it's recently become fairly popular, by a, a group called We the Kingdom, and the song is called Holy Water. And I don't know if you're like me, you probably start singing it in your head as soon as you hear it. But there's, there's some lyrics that go along with that song. And it's, it's, it's simple lyrics, but I, I want to remind us of it. It says, I don't want to abuse your grace. God, I need it every day. It's the only thing that ever really makes me want to change. I don't want to, ab- to abuse your grace. God, I need it every day. It's the only thing that ever really makes me want to change. This is the response of being healed by Jesus. It's to stop walking in sin. And to begin a new life where you live walking with Christ instead of walking in your old ways. And it doesn't mean that we never stumble. It doesn't mean that we never sin again. It means that our heart and our passion and our desire is not to walk in the ways of this world, but our our passion and our desire is to walk in a holy way, walking with the Spirit guiding us as we want to live a life that is pleasing and honoring to our Savior because of the grace that He poured out on us. And if our response to that isn't a desire to please Him, then there's something wrong in our hearts because that's a right response when we have been shown grace and love to want to walk in a way that honors Jesus that's the response of being healed by Jesus Romans 8 1 through 14 um, probably one of the one of the greatest passages of Scripture, and, and all of Scripture is great, and so I, I don't want to try to put things on pedestals, but there's just such rich truth here uh, that I want to share it with you. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Th- those are beautiful words. There is thou for, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh 
but according to the Spirit. That is a, a, a glorious, joyful passage. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. And so I want to wrap up this morning and close with just a simple question. Who are you in this story? Where do you see yourself in this story? Where do you see yourself? Are you a Pharisee? Are you, are you always looking at the sins of others? Do you tend to spend more time just pointing out the sins of those around you than you do looking into your own heart, looking into your own life? Do you recognize your own sin? Or are you afraid of being exposed? All of us, like this woman, we have been caught in the act of sin. And the truth is, God's law, according to God's law, we stand condemned. We stand condemned. But if you've been living your life running from your own sin, there's, there's good news for you. Just like there was good news for this woman who realized that she had nowhere else to go. Jesus stands by. He stands by ready and willing to offer the same grace that's poured out in this passage. He offers it to us. And Jesus has a way of thinning out a crowd, right? I mean, we've seen that throughout Scripture. He has a way of kind of drawing these big crowds based on stories that people hear about him. And then by the end of his teaching, it seems like no one's really there anymore. And uh, you, you see that today with this woman. He's already teaching to a crowd of people. And then teachers and Pharisees come and they bring this woman. And, and at the end of the story, everyone's gone. It's just Jesus and this woman. We have to come to that place, that place of just utter dependence where we, we, we have nowhere else to go. We recognize that there's, there's no hope in anywhere else that I turn. Hope is only found in the person of Jesus. And when we come to that moment, we have an option to, to turn and just try to look somewhere else. Or we have the option like David took to turn and, and face the face of Jesus. And he pours out grace upon grace. Jesus has already thinned out crowds. In John 6, we studied this passage a little while ago. The very end, verse 66 through 69, says, After this, many of his disciples turned back, and they no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We have to come to a place where we realize that Jesus is the only answer for our sin problem. He is the only answer. So Jesus stood up and he said to the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, from now on, sin no more. Jesus is the answer to our sin problem. I ask you guys to pray with me as we finish up this morning. God, you are grace-filled. God, your mercy is new every day. And, and God, we recognize that we often live life that trying to do things our own way. That trying to walk in our, in our own wisdom. Trying to walk in our own path. And God, when we are faced with the reality of our sin, God, we so often turn the other way. 
God, when you are the, the only option, God, when you stand before us and we stand convicted, God, we turn the other way. Father, forgive us of those moments, forgive us of those times when we look to things of this world to satisfy us. When we look to, to hope of this world, God, to satisfy us. Father, forgive us. God, bring repentance, God, into our heart that, God, may we turn to you and you alone. God, when we are faced with the reality of our sin problem. And God, there is good news to be found in you. God, you did not come to this world to condemn the world, but God, to bring salvation and hope and joy and the righteousness that comes, God, through faith in Jesus. So God, we're grateful for the cross. God, we're grateful that you could look at that woman and you could say, neither do I condemn you. God, knowing full well that God, you would suffer the payment for her sin. God, that's what fueled you and allowed you to say that you'd no longer condemn her. God, may the truth of that, God, the truth of your grace and your forgiveness, God, swell up inside of us a desire, God, to love you more, to follow you more, God, to be on mission for you more. God, may the distractions of this world, God, fall to the side, God, as we turn and see your face. It's in the precious and holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.